Joining me today is a woman who is perhaps doing more than anyone else to fight for the future of our fragile, precarious world. After studying sociology and earning a master's degree in journalism, she ran an interior design firm for 16 years. Yet, it is her tech forward, planet first philanthropy that will likely provide the lasting legacy of her wide ranging career. In 2006, together with her husband, Eric, former CEO of Google, she co-founded the Schmidt Family Foundation and became its president. And over the past 15 years, she's made it her mission to use that foundation to create and fund a series of non-profit making organizations, all united by one goal, to protect planet Earth. A competitive sailor, she founded 11th Hour Racing, an organization that sits at the intersection of sailing and the maritime industry, working to advance sustainability practices that restore the health of our oceans. 11th Hour Racing is the founding partner of the Ocean Racing Sustainability Programme and a long-term premier partner of the event with the partnership aiming to shape the sport's future relationship with the ocean. Is there anything she doesn't do? A warm welcome to one of the world's great change makers, Wendy Schmidt. Wendy, I'm already wearied by the richness, drive and purpose contained in that resume. What on earth do you do in your spare time? Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, well, I, I, I love to uh, play tennis. Love to play tennis. And you know what I'm not good at, Seb? I'm really bad at organizing my inbox. I need somebody <laughs> to help me. I mean, the messages come and they come and it's like this great wave of things. I know there's organizing things out there, but I've never had the time to deal with them. So I feel, you know, if you're technically challenged, I am too. Uh, I'm just moving too fast. Well, technology, for, I think for most of us, well, I, no, I won't say for most of us because that would be ridiculous given that you're my guest today. But certainly I have found technology in the last year quite an eye-opener. There is, there's technology that I couldn't have even pronounced a year ago. And if somebody said to me that the most popularly used expression over the course of the last year was likely to be, I'm sorry, you're on mute, I think we'd have all probably taken good odds on that one. <laughs> let me... Let me, if I may, go back to the beginning, because uh, sociology uh, and then journalism, it's, it's not obviously a springboard uh, into the acquisition of research vessels. What was that journey? Mm. Well, I've always been very interested in why people know what they know, why they think what they think. That was, that was what I was really studying. Journalism was about how to communicate to people and try how to how to message things, right? How to tell a story. So those are sort of the backgrounds for me. Um, the, the philanthropy began obviously with the wealth from Google. Uh, Eric and I had to figure out what do we care about, what are we going to work on for the rest of our lives. Uh, this is it's an unusual privilege that you you get uh, if you get to be a philanthropist. So. Uh, in those days, in 2005, Al Gore was around giving a, a, a chalk talk, we called it, a, a lecture about something called global warming. And amazingly, if you think back, it's not that long ago, but nobody knew what that was. And I, I happened to have a friend who heard him speak and said to me, we need to get him to Silicon Valley, right? This is this nexus of great change and revolution and ideas, and nobody's even talking about this. So we arranged to get Al Gore to come to Stanford and to give his talk uh, at the end of 2005. The uh, film crew was with him. They were filming An Inconvenient Truth. 
And uh, we organized a dinner after that talk for 350 people in Silicon Valley who were business leaders and technologists and uh, NGO heads and government leaders to try to start this conversation, try to kickstart what can we do? We're all about solutions here. So that was the beginning of the foundation. We called it the 11th Hour Project because we're at the 11th hour and I, I think we still are in so many ways. So that was the springboard into our philanthropy and we very soon realized within a year or two that you can't address climate change, let's call it that today, if you don't look at the systems of which it is a symptom. And that means you have to look at the industrial food system. You have to look at our energy system. And ultimately that leads you to looking at human rights and how are we, how are we thinking about that relationship between humans and the environment that supports us now, the ocean part of our work came in after I started sailing in 2007. Started to wonder about what's under the ocean, what's going on there. I learned to scuba dive. And Eric and I were looking for something else to do together and decided we would create a research vessel and bring together my interest in communicating about the ocean and what I was learning about it and his interest in technology. And that was how the Schmidt Ocean Institute was born. And we found an old discarded German fisheries vessel in 2009 uh, and spent three years in Hamburg uh, retrofitting that ship into the research vessel Falkor. And then we took another idea from Silicon Valley, which was open source, right? The, the real revolutions in computing have been because of open source and people's ability to share data. And it turns out in the ocean space that ship time was in a short, let's put it this way, Ship time was hard to get for scientists. There aren't a yeah. lot of ships. Yeah. And also we thought we could create this platform and offer this to scientific parties around the world in exchange for their open sharing of data. And that was quite revolutionary in 2013. There was a little bit of pushback from the community because people like to keep their data for themselves and write their papers and publish. But in fact, we're going to accelerate marine science. We're going to share data. And that's really what happened. And that has changed the way marine science is conducted till this day. So I think that's that's been very successful. And we've built an enormous community of, of about a thousand scientists who have traveled on the vessel Falkor in the last uh, decade um, from, from many countries. And they're all in communication, which was the point. It's, it's, it's a very interesting point you make because uh, there are two two particular points I'd like to pick up on. One is that sort of, you know, all comparison ends after this, but you and I were, were sort of hewn from, in a way, the same um, academic background. I, I studied economics. I thought for a large part of my, the early uh, part of my life until other things intervened that I'd probably end up uh, in journalism. And, and going back to my economic studies, I cannot remember a even a glancing blow, uh, just a, a touching moment from a tutor or any an lecturer about anything to do with climate change or environmental uh, degradation. I mean, it was, you know, we were all sort of trying to figure out that Keynes wasn't really the guru anymore. And it was this strange man out of Chicago, Milton Friedman, that was talking about M3 and, you know, money supply. Um, and it really has been a rapid, I mean, relatively, I mean, they talk about economics as being the, the young science, but this is, this is so, so much younger. And people have picked up so quickly. And the point I 
that you make, and I think it's a really interesting one, is everybody becomes so protective of their own data uh, and for, for fear of sharing it and for fear of sort of losing primacy. Uh, forgetting that, of course, everything is pretty searchable at the moment. But you made that very much a point, didn't you, uh, in terms of not just sharing data, but if you wanted to further the, the, the body of knowledge and understanding, people really did have to work together in this space. Oh, absolutely. And in every space. I mean, you and I have experienced this in our lifetimes, but we've lived through a revolution. In fact, we're still in one, an information revolution. You know, it's transformed the way we do absolutely everything. When, when my husband was in graduate school at Berkeley, uh, he would stay up all night compiling data. Computers, supercomputers were the size of your house, okay? And now you carry around in your, your phone as much computing power as sent men to the moon. So all of this has accelerated in the last 40 years, and it really makes us have to rethink our own understanding of our planet. I, I give uh, talks uh, to college students about ocean health uh, in, in, uh, in certain places, and I always ask them, you know, how would you feel when your phone disappears out of your life? It's just gone. You'd feel like your arm was cut off. Well, this is what the natural world is like. It is networked the way that we are. And we're late to understanding this connection, this essential connection between all living systems. Humans are just a part of this. We see this in technology and the power of networks. We understand it from an abstract perspective, but we need to bring that perspective into our own understanding of the world we live in, particularly where it comes to the ocean. When, when I talk about the ocean, I'm really re trying to reach people who don't even live near it because it's okay for us to talk to people who already care about things. Environmentalists have done this for decades. It, it's called talking to the choir. We're not going to get anywhere until we can talk to people who are not already believers, who don't understand the connection that they have. You know, when you look at the earth as a whole and you see the, the shape of our land and the contours, when we get to the edge of the ocean, that all continues. It just continues as a surface under the water where most life on earth actually lives. And here we are as humans, mostly seeing the ocean from 35,000 feet or from the edge of the shore or from a ferry boat. We don't even understand where we're living. And that's the life support system that's right there and why it's so urgent right now that we need to start to understand it better so we can care. You've traced your path through, you know, the, 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 the discussions and the, and the greater understanding and the Al Gore. But... As, as a younger person, do, was there a, a particular point, was there a light bulb moment where you looked at this and just instinctively thought, you know, we're going to have to look at this in a different way? I would say as a child, I probably grew up outside. Children used to do that. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. Um, I do. <laughs> they don't now so much, but we did. And so I grew up in a four seasons East Coast uh, home, uh, spent a lot of time outside, was very sensitive, I remember, to the, the, the smells, the touches, the feeling. These things are very powerful for humans. Uh, it was many years later when I had lived in California for a while and was back on Cape Cod in the summertime, and I remember this moment of, oh my, the scent, the, the feeling of the grass. It, it took me back to memories of my childhood. Our olfactory sense is our most powerful one to our brain, right? That connects us to our experiences. 
So I think I just always had a sensitivity. I loved the wind. I loved storms. I loved the power that I could see outside of my own little world. You were famously quoted, uh, and I look down at my notes here, wealth is responsibility one way or another. Uh, and clearly that has been something that has guided so many of your principles and, 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 and what you've gone on to do. What I'm interested here is that intersection between private philanthropy and what governments could and maybe should be doing more. Where is the intersection and how do you think private philanthropy can more comfortably sit uh, alongside what we have to conclude on occasions, even being charitable here, is the slightly ponderous, um, sclerotic view uh, that government has often taken, particularly to the issues around climate change? Mm. Well, I think in general, um, you have to look at philanthropy as a tool. It's one tool. It's not the only one. I look at it as velocity. I look at it as energy. When a philanthropist invests in something, they're, they're giving it power, Right. We'll never spend as much as philanthropists as governments are capable of doing. But we have a very different way of looking at the world. We're basically your studied economics, okay? We're the, we're the high-risk capital. That's what we are. We're giving money away. We're not expecting to get it back. What we're expecting to see is change. We're expecting to see velocity in an area where we're investing. So I look very much at what we're doing as investing. And in that profile... I have a tolerance for risk and getting on board early with things that governments don't have, business doesn't have. Business and government come in very often, at least in the science research world, once something's already proven, once it's seen to be a thing, then government money comes in, then businesses come and support it. So part of and the legislative so action? Uh, again, the policy follows where's the money, yeah. where's the money going? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the most fun things about being a philanthropist is being able to get in on those very early ideas and support them and, and, and give them energy and prove them out, whether that's marine technology, whether that's, you know, we have a group called Schmidt Marine Technology Partners, and, and they're looking at very specific ways of applying technology to ocean problems that nobody's known how to solve, like illegal fishing or bycatch that creating so much waste in the ocean that there there's a barcode a DNA barcode scanner that's been developed that can identify the fish that's coming into a market so it can't be falsely labeled Th these are breakthrough things that require early investment to be developed and that's a really interesting space in philanthropy so the government responsibility is still there there's no question about it but i guess we we get to point out the way and hopefully that will happen. There are some really interesting international efforts underway right now. The United Nations Decade for Ocean Sciences for Sustainable yeah. Development has just started. And this is an, a, a great opportunity across the board for governments and business and industry and philanthropy to play a role uh, in the next decade, to, to greatly lead toward policies 10 years from now that will protect the ocean in ways we're not doing now, particularly on the high seas. I was only smiling partly through my tortured experiences because I was for a period of my life a member of parliament in a fishing constituency. So 
bycatch, net sizes, you know, days at sea and tie up and, and the what we call the December the 13th negotiation around uh, fish supplies and stocks and mackerel boxes and sector seven in the Irish Sea is something sadly I know all too too, too much about. But the, the one thing that comes through uh, in your writing and when you have been interviewed is you really do see all these things as interconnected, complicated at times, but absolutely inextricably linked, whether it is rapacious, you know, consumption of, of, of raw materials, whether it is about, you know, illegal fishing, whether it is about just, you know, deep sea mining, you know, you, you just see it as one big pathology. Uh, and I think that's, that's my instinct in this. This is what has made you different from so many out there. Mm-hmm. I, I do, I, that's fundamental to us. It, it's really informed all of it from the very beginning. And that's why, you know, our work is very cross-disciplinary, very interconnected. And why we're also very attracted to age-old human understandings that have been kind of disregarded in the modern world. I look at a lot of our problems or pathologies, as you say, dating back no more than about 100 years uh, when the Industrial Revolution really took hold. When my mother was born in 1931, there were only 2 billion humans. You probably could have done anything you wanted. You could have burned anything you wanted. It wouldn't matter. But now we're in a very different place, right? And we're behaving the same way. Um, my friend Annie Leonard likes to say, if everyone lived like Americans, we would need four planets to supply the needs. And the fact is we live in a limited world. But nevertheless, it is a world full of regeneration. And we've always just tried to look to nature, to biomimicry, to understand what is nature's design. This is my connection from interior design, to look outside and say, look at this design. When I go diving, and I'm under the water, I'm on the bottom of the ocean, I'm not seeing waste. There isn't any. Nature's very efficient. When you look out in your garden and the flowers are blooming, they're profuse. They don't waste, they drop to the ground, they regenerate the soil. If we could look at our own industries in this century and begin to remake them in a regenerative fashion, we could solve a lot of problems. The counterpart of that is what we're doing now. I look at the petrochemical industry largely as responsible for not only fossil fuel burning activities and technologies, but also the creation of more and more plastic and microplastic that we're finding in the ocean in the most remote places. In the last Volvo Ocean Race, the boats that were sampling water throughout the route of the race sampled uh, at Point Nemo. This is the farthest place from any landmass on Earth and where the closest people to you are in the space station when it orbits overhead. And they found microplastics in the water there. I mean, that, that's just, this is symptomatic of, of an industrial society that needs to change fundamentally. Now, I've worked with your, your countrywoman, uh, Ellen MacArthur, quite a bit. Her yes, fa- indeed. Her foundation is fantastic. Ellen is a national treasure. Absolutely. Uh, we've worked together since the foundation began in 2012 uh, as a fellow sailor. Uh, that was how I approached her. She didn't uh, agree to become an ambassador for 11th Hour Racing, but we did start working together on projects in philanthropy. Yep. Uh, the new plastics economy, chiefly, be- being the, the focus Uh, We ran a a kind of a competition in 2018 to help, again, innovators to come up with new materials for packaging and new processes for plastics. 
um, in ways that nobody has done, material challenge and packaging challenge. 40% of what we pull out of the ocean as waste is food packaging. Can we yeah. come up with something better? We can. I, I, the economist in me tells me, interestingly, that one of the keys to this may well be putting an economic value on plastics. Look, you know, if we didn't put an economic value in simple terms on scrap iron, we'd probably all be knee deep or probably shoulder high in scrap iron in our in our city centres. It does occur to me that actually if you made this, uh, you, you had a levy of some description that actually put some intrinsic value on it rather than people sort of thinking that, it, well, it's my task is probably to organise neighbourhood watch groups to, to sort of pick it off beaches. That may actually sit alongside some of the other things that so many uh, are, are looking at. But, but, but I, I digress for a moment. What, what I'm interested in here is, again, it, it's, I guess it's the balance, isn't it, between the big response, which, you know, we've got from you, your foundations uh, and some tech based businesses. Uh, let me just park it there for a moment. Do you think there is a big enough response? to some of these challenges around the, the, the big tech businesses? Do you think they could be doing more here? Oh, that's very interesting. So I, I'm not particularly familiar with what they are doing or not doing um, in technology. Um, they know that what they do is very impactful and very quickly, as we've said, right? They, they are able to transform the world. What they don't understand, I don't, I don't think, is necessarily their immediate impact. Uh, our daughter, Sophie, uh, started a, a project online last this last year, uh, a digital publication called Rest of World. And Rest of World is looking at the impact of technology around the world in countries that are not Western Europe or the UK or yeah. North America. Uh, and it's just fascinating to read these stories. Rest of World is a bit of a derogatory term. She came upon it in business school to refer to everybody in the rest of the world yeah. that isn't, you know, you, yeah. you know this as an economist. Okay. And uh, she thought, this is where most people live. This is where most of our economic activity goes on. Uh, and what is the impact of technology? People are very clever. They will twist and use things that have been created for one purpose for another. And governments in, in the same way may, may use some of these technologies for repressive activity, activities and for bad outcomes. But it's yeah. time for us to reframe what we're looking at here, right? You have people creating products that go around in the world very quickly. What is the impact of these things? How does this change society? It's a really complicated thing. That's why I call it a revolution, because it's, it's almost more powerful than governments at this point. And, and individual personal action is important here as well, isn't it? It's very easy to get lost in the Grand Projet and, you know, the big names and the big organisations. But as, as individuals, we all have a responsibility to do those things that can and will make a difference. I guess that must be part of the message too. I think that's true. I, I think, you know, you, you mustn't let the perfect kill the good. And some of yeah. it is developing better habits and understanding why you're making the choices you are. There's certainly an opportunity as a consumer to vote with your pocketbook, as they say. But there's also the responsibility from the industries themselves to come along. One of the most wasteful of the industries, of course, is, is fashion. Um, and we're working with the apparel uh, Impact Institute and all of its partners to try to look at this question of 
what is in our supply chains? Where is it coming from? We can use technologies like blockchain now to trace things. We can have accountability in the world today in a way we never did before. That's a great business opportunity, and it's also something that will serve consumers a lot better. Um, I think we've been fairly ignorant up until now, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the pandemic, but this has been a huge opportunity to, to look under the hood a little bit and say, why are, these, why are things the way they are? It's been super interesting for us in the philanthropy we do because we always look at solutions as being local fundamentally. Yeah. We talk about scale. It's not that you take a small thing and just make it bigger. Nature doesn't do that. Nature is at all scales, and they're all important. I, I learned on sailboat racing teams, every job is important. It's not one person. When you win a race by one second of corrected time, you can't look at anybody on that boat and say, that was you. It's not you. It's everybody, right? It's marginal right? gains. Yeah. Yes, but, but yeah. Anyway. Um, no, no. So uh, uh, let me just sort of rest on this technology piece because I'm I'm interested here. By 2030, which is no less than a decade, you plan to have mapped the entirety uh, of the ocean floor, uh, which actually got me thinking um, about other types of technology that maybe you can see currently or on the horizon that has the equivalent chance of, of shifting the dial? Well, the, the ocean mapping work is a very large global effort sponsored by the Nippon Foundation. It's called yeah. Seabed 2030, and our ship will be contributing to that. And, you know, setting that ambitious goal, who knows if we'll reach it. But if, again, it's a question of collaboration and everybody pouring their information in together to create that encyclopedia, that's going to help us so much to make better decisions for governments and industry to know perhaps there's a place you can go mine in the ocean that's harmless, basically harmless, not going to disrupt anything. And there might be an area 50 miles away where there's enormous biodiversity that we haven't even seen. I look at this all and just say we're so, so ignorant. You know, you imagine, probably most of your listeners imagine that there's lots of ocean work going on. There's lots of vessels. The governments are out there. There's lots of ships on the sea. The fact is there are very few that are really doing research and really trying to describe the world of the ocean. And what we're finding initially with the tools we've had, you know, we haven't been able to do this work, speaking about technology, until recently when we've got the tools, the eyes, the ears, the hands, the robotics, to be able to get to the bottom of the ocean and study it and take pictures in high definition and share them. What we're seeing, though, is, is disheartening. You're finding mylar Disney balloons in the trenches at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. One, one, of the, one of the pictures we had from a couple of years ago showed a, a fully flocked plastic Christmas tree at the bottom of a trench. So the, our human footprint is just at a scale, really, for our biomass. Uh, that's what we're learning. And when we discover aliens in the ocean and we find these wonderful life forms, we shouldn't be surprised about that. We're, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. We, we know absolutely so little. And generally in science, we know so little. This is another area of our philanthropic investment is in the basic research. You'd be probably surprised to know we don't actually understand the basic activity of a cell. We don't know. We don't understand why a cell turns cancerous. We don't understand what the instructions are and why things happen the way they happen in biology. 
we're just on the frontiers. And now that we have these machines, right, and the artificial intelligence, the machine learning, to look for these enormously subtle patterns in the world at, at scale, we're, we're, we have the opportunity for far better diagnostics and therapeutics and treatments. We're really on the verge of that. That would be my answer to your question about what's the next technological breakthrough. I think that's what it is. What I'm what I'm interested here is that, uh, and again, if I sort of digress just for a moment, um, wearing my World Athletics hat, I know that, and I certainly understood this during the London Olympic years, that sport is a very good vehicle for driving some of this messaging. I mean, if you look at the you know the content of most print or online sites, sort of fifteen percent is sort of environmental, 85% is sport. And I always used to say to my teams in London, you know, and, and certainly those organisations that were um, trying to activate uh, around whether it was labour relations or labour conditions or many of the human rights issues, don't see us as a competitor, see us as a collaborator. We can actually help you globalise that message, and, and for instance, we have a partnership in World Athletics with the United Nations Environmental Programs uh, around clean air. So our passion is is about clean air. I mean, water for us is is important, but it's only if it goes wrong in the steeplechase. So oceans are something we feel strongly about, but actually providing clean air for people that are out there running, you don't want to replace a whole set of pathologies with another set of pathologies. Um, and I'm interested because your partnership here uh, with uh, Ocean Racing uh, and 11th Hour Racing and, and Ben Ainsley and, and, and what you've gone on to do, that, that I'm guessing is a way that has helped you globalise the message. The, the basic understanding, the basic drive is there, but you found that a helpful conduit. To, to, to just getting more people engaged, particularly in the sailing fraternity. Absolutely. It's all about who are you speaking to. You know, in the world of, of competitive sailboat racing, particularly in Europe, you've got massive crowds. I mean, the organizers have an enormous opportunity to reach people in a really compelling and interesting way where they learn something. That the spark for this happened in 2010, I was in Porta Cervo at a regatta with my team. And in the morning, Pallets of water bottles, individual plastic water bottles, would come down to the docks to the hundreds of boats that were, were tied up there. And I began to think, my goodness, up in the tents, we have sponsors selling wristwatches and athletic shoes. I thought, but, but people are here. They're milling around. They're here for hours every day. Not only are we polluting with the plastic bottles, why are we doing that? But what are we teaching anybody? We could use that platform and that interface with all those people to help them understand what's going on out in the ocean that we use for our recreation. That, that the ocean is more than just, just a surface to, to sail boats on. It, it is the living system of the planet. And so we've, we've worked with the ocean race. We worked with Ben Ainsley's team in the last America's Cup to build sustainability messages into that experience of going to a race village and that experience of being a fan. What does it mean? In the ocean race, uh, in the last version, we started hosting ocean summits at all the stopover cities uh, where the boats would come into port. Now, everybody has a local ocean issue of some kind, and every local government can make some commitment to positive change. 
And so we would gather these groups together for um, for a day to have uh, journalists and sailors and scientists and local government officials discuss what do we know, what's going on right now, what can we do together, and make a commitment uh, to change. And that's a really fun thing to be able to do as the boats make their way around the course. In the race villages, we have designed them to be zero waste. So imagine going to a, a spectacle like that with, with thousands of people and seeing no waste around you. None from the food vendors, none from anybody. And, and also being able to visit an exploration zone where you can get up close and personal using technology to experience what the, the sailors themselves are, are feeling and seeing in, in exciting places like the Southern Ocean. So we're trying to really grab people's attention and it's, it's, you educate by entertaining in a way and you break through paradigms that people are carrying around with new ones. And, and the citizen science programs, the sustainability programs that you've activated around have really have really engaged people. I mean, I was fascinated by the citizen science program, the ability for people to actually help you in some of the diagnostic issues. Look at what turns up on cameras. Look at, you know, just to be able to identify some of these challenges. This is really yeah. this is really broadening the the appeal, isn't it? And it uses the technology. Uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute, we do a lot of outreach programs like that. And we've encouraged people, as you mentioned, to go through the videos that we're, we're putting up on YouTube and, and help us identify things that they know are there. Uh, one of the most fun things I did last summer, uh, I was on Nantucket and I was watching one of the live dives of um, Sebastian, that's our ROV, uh, off the coast of Australia. That's a good name. That's a good name. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, we, it came from the never-ending story. Um, as well. Anyway, I'm watching this and uh, along the side of the video is a live chat going on. And you don't know what you're going to see. The, the, the camera is just taking you along this reef and you're dropping down and people are chiming in and making comments. There's scientists, there's just casual observers. I was doing this late at night and I found, you know, an hour and a half had gone by and I, I'm just mesmerized by this interactive experience that nobody's ever had before now. Right? When I grew up, there was Jacques Cousteau and his wonderful world under the sea, and it would come on once a week on black and white television. I remember I that, sadly. I didn't feel like it had anything to do with me growing up in New Jersey. I, I, I couldn't relate. Yeah. But we can make experiences really relatable for people now. In fact, you know, on the frontiers of virtual reality, think of all that we can really show people and give them that, that emotional sense of connection to what is in the ocean and what we get to see every day. You know, every dive we do is different. Every single time it's different. And our understanding just has to follow that same trajectory. Uh, my friend Craig Venter uh, sampled ocean water in 2005 when he sailed around the world looking at ocean microorganisms. There were only 5,000 that were known of when he did this. And when he came back after a year or so at sea and analyzed what he had, there were millions of ocean microorganisms. And not only that, they were different every 200 miles. So the ocean isn't a big soup. It's, it's as diverse and complex and fascinating as a spoonful of soil that has millions of microbes in it. We're just not looking at it right. And now with our technology and tools, we can begin to see the world in a different light. One of the... One of the great commonalities that I found, uh, and I've been very privileged in, in this series to speak to some 
absolutely extraordinary people. Uh, and one of the commonalities I've sensed is just a restless curiosity. Uh, I remember speaking to Phil Knight, the founding father and, and effectively owner of Nike, who, who talked about always wanting to get to a fork in the road and just that restless curiosity about knowing what was around it. He did, in fact, describe Nike as the 56-year-old overnight sensation, which made me smile. What is left for you here? Because you have achieved so much, and you'll probably tell me and cut me off very sharply and say, no, we've only really just begun. There's just so much more we have to do because this is a very precarious ecosystem that you've, you're protecting. But, you know, what else is there that you would really like to drive forward on? Is it in this sphere or is there something else that is sort of coming to, you know, just coming into shape for you? I think it's progressive. I think 11th hour racing, we talk about one degree at a time. That's how you yeah. make change. And I'm when you are sailing, when you are racing, you're right in that moment. There's a kind of a poise where you're looking around, listening, watching the wind, sensing things. I try to stay in the moment I'm in. I, I've never had any ambition. I'll tell you that. Never. I never had any vision of what I would do. It's all about what seems right next. Where are we going? Right now, our foundation is quite focused on the experience of indigenous peoples and how the knowledge and the wisdom of the collective wisdom of people who survived for up to 15,000 years without anything that we think of as necessary, um, they knew something about the reciprocity of life around them. And I think on the next frontier, I want to see modern societies begin to understand that. In the pandemic, we watched how local resources supported people on a very satisfactory scale, whereas large expansive supply chains broke down. I want us to look at the way nature organizes itself from the very smallest subatomic particle to the farthest reaches of space and place ourselves in that. We are in a continuum. And our task in my lifetime that's remaining is to find out where we fit into that. How do we live in that reciprocal world? Not just taking all that we can and not worrying about what's left, but gathering what we need and thinking about what we leave behind. What are the learnings for you out of the pandemic? I mean, you know, I guess the historian in me, you know, has always read at various moments that this has been a paradigm shift, that the world is always is going to look at things in an entirely different way. And I think there's always an element of truth in that. Uh, do you think that we really have come of age uh, off the back of this and recognise that we are, you know, sovereignty is a completely alien concept when it comes to some of the big cross-border issues that we've had to, 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 to really deal with. Do you think this is a, a huge shift or do you think there is a risk we'll all sort of slide back to, you know, you know boarding our planes without really thinking about it again and, and doing some of the things that we probably shouldn't have been doing, but hey, you know, the world keeps rolling? I think it was a huge interruption, certainly. Uh, it's hard to say what's going to happen out of it. People have noted, you know, a redu reduction in, in carbon emissions um, that was dramatic, right, when, when things sort of stopped working and sh things shut down. Unfortunately, that was accompanied by a rise in global poverty. So that whole system got out of whack. Um, I would look at it and say 
going back to normal makes you say normal wasn't that good. <laughs> normal had a lot of problems with it. It's systemic and we need to take the opportunity all the time to think about how to make these systems better, more equitable, more access for more people, even science itself. Science is a human-centered enterprise. What are we doing it for if we're not trying to make life better with less suffering for more people? We have to be clear about what we're trying to do. Um, so I, I think, you know, somebody said uh, the pandemic was nature's way of sending us all back to our room to think about what we've done. Yeah, we, we've done it, right? And now we all want to come out again. Um, I know in the work that we do, as I said, we've seen resilient systems come out of the things that have begun to change at local levels. And our, if, I think if the world starts to focus on resilience and recovery, rather than just consumption and economic growth at all costs, uh, we'll have a different kind of world. Everybody, I think, if you ask them, would want to see a world that had regenerative qualities to it, right? Nobody wants to live in a wasteland. And we have to figure out, we're smart, let's figure out how to get there. Uh, I'm very concerned about the plastic and microplastic problems. We, we, we don't even know the impact of these substances in our bodies. We do know that babies are born now from mother and, and some of the most dangerous things for babies are mother's milk. Babies are born pre-polluted. Um, I used to think that when we, we started having transparency with phones that customers would go into shops and would be able to see what was in each ingredient and in each product and, and reject the ones that seemed unsafe. To some degree that's happened. To some degree there have been shifts in the marketplace, but that didn't really happen as fast that, as... That really, that really does take the concept of consumer sovereignty onto the next platform if you can use technology to really inform those, those retail decisions. We well, would think that people would, and to some extent they do. It hasn't completely transformed the world. However, if you look at the growth in safe, healthy products that aren't greenwashed, the real ones, that market has grown um, faster than you would have thought. Um, but we'll, we'll see what's next. I, I think uh, nobody will forget this pandemic, and pandemics change societies. Every historian will tell you that in ways you cannot predict. Um, I think it's humbling for humanity to understand that we were literally brought to our knees by a particle too small to see. It, it, that's the power in, 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 in the world around us. And, and by the way, the viruses aren't even alive. Viruses are just bits of code. They think about it that way, that get into the cells. And there are lots of them um, incubating right now in creatures all over the world. Who's, and their only intention is to infect humans. So I don't think this is the last of these episodes. I, I'm absolutely sure it's not. And, you know, we sort of all got seduced into the slightly lazy, uh, me included, the sort of slightly lazy journalistic shorthand that this was going to be the great level, or actually it's been anything other than the great level. It, the pandemic has hit those communities at the wrong end of the socioeconomic food chain, both in terms of their immune systems, and that is inextricably linked to housing and educational aspiration. I think that, for me, is, you know, is, is the big lesson that's come out of this, that we really do have to do a great deal more uh, to, 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 to challenge ourselves around income inequality and, uh, and equality of opportunity. But that's, that's probably for another day. Wendy, I'm acutely conscious that I've already taken up far more of your time than, than we actually or you agreed to. So I'm incredibly grateful. 
Thank you for very much for everything that you've done in this sphere, for everything I know your restless curiosity uh, will lead you to doing. And thank you very much for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Good luck. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 